30 to 40 years ago, the field of general surgery was truly flourishing. General surgeons treated patients for an array of surgical conditions. As the concept of present-day subspecialties had yet to take hold, what has led to the significant shift in the focus of general surgery at the present time? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon. Our guest is Dr. Dana Christian Lynch. Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Washington School of Medicine and Practicing General Surgeon. Dr. Lynch is the lead author of research published in the Archives of Surgery on the National Shortage of General Surgeons. Welcome, Dr. Lynch. Thank you very much for having me. We are discussing the evolution of general surgery. Dr. Lynch, before we get started, how would you define general surgery? General surgery in its present incarnation in urban or large rural areas is largely abdominal surgery, breast surgery, endocrine surgery, and surgery of the soft tissues. If you are a general surgeon practicing in a remote area, your practice might also encompass some basic gynecologic surgery such as hysterectomy, obstetrics such as C-sections, possibly basic fracture work and even elements of ENT or urology, although that varies from place to place and probably general surgeons doing that kind of surgery is much less frequent than it was 50 years ago. General surgery also, particularly in rural places but also in urban areas, are often the surgical critical care specialists and those who are also the surgeons who are most expert in nutrition, particularly total parental nutrition. It seems that so many of the lay public do not realize that general surgery is a specialty in of itself, and they look at general surgery as akin to general practice. I think that's true, and that you know shows the importance of a label. I think you're right. There are a lot of people in the public who don't realize the amount of training that it takes to become a general surgeon and that it's commensurate with most of the surgical subspecialties. Years ago, I went into general surgery in large part because of the variety of the different parts of the body, the different disease processes, the different operations we did. Why do you think most people have gone into general surgery? Well, I think for the same reasons you do. I mean, when I talk to residents who I work with these days, that's still the attraction of general surgery is that you do a wide variety of procedures. You are also, I think it's fair to say, one of the last branches of medicine and surgery who still takes care of the entire patient. In other words, you don't subcontract out the medical care of your patient and your training makes you capable of dealing with a lot of the non-surgical problems that your patients have. So that's satisfactory. You know, as a final point, talking about the past, it used to be that when someone said, what was your field, you'd never say general surgery, you'd say, I'm a surgeon. And people would understand that as the field of general surgery. Do you think that it is declining in interest at this point? There's certainly a lot of discussion at the national meetings and a lot of literature documenting at least a recent decline in interest among medical students in general surgery. And 
a increasing interest in areas of both surgery and medicine that have better remuneration and more controllable lifestyles. So I think it's not just a lack of interest in general surgery. It's just that issues of hours and money are influencing medical students to make different decisions across the board. And, you know, there, there's a bunch of reasons for that. It may be a shift in in values. It also may be due to the fact that, realistically, the amount of debt that students graduate with now is quite high. You know, life has changed compared, say, to the 40s and 50s. A lot of physicians now will be two-career families, and both spouses will be expected to participate in raising the children or whatever, and so control over hours becomes more of an issue. And general surgery is, let's face it, not a cushy lifestyle choice. Wherever you are, there's usually a fair amount of call and getting up in the middle of the night, and there are other specialties where you can have much less call and make more money for the amount of training you do and the hours you put in. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and our guest is Dr. Dana Christian Lynch, Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Washington School of Medicine and a practicing general surgeon. We're discussing the evolution of general surgery. Dr. Lynch, when I was a resident years ago, there were not terribly many residents who went on from general surgery and took a fellowship and planned to stay in that specialty. Now, it seems that the pressure to go on from general surgery residency to do some sort of fellowship has increased dramatically. Do you think that's a reason why the numbers in general surgery have decreased? I think that is in part true. In our paper, we certainly cited as one of the reasons for the decline in number of general surgeons per 100,000 population. And if you look at the literature, and particularly the work of George Sheldon from North Carolina, it documents the fact that up to somewhere between 70 to 90 percent, depending on what kind of program you look at, of general surgery, graduating chief residents go on to pursue some form of subspecialty training or fellowship. And there's many possible reasons for that. One is that particularly if you work in a large urban area in order to make yourself competitive and carve out a niche, it's good to have subspecialty training. The other is that the number and complexity and depth of knowledge required, you know, in every area of medicine arguably has increased. And so there's a, you know, a, a reasonable argument for more training. And three, one thing that you hear talk of, and I don't know if it's true or not, but that nowadays, it, particularly with hours, limitations, and difficulty getting adequate case numbers that in some cases, some residents may feel that they need or want additional training in order to feel competent in an area of endeavor before they embark upon their practice. So there's many possible reasons that, you know, you can conjecture on, but it's certainly a fact that more general surgery residents pursue subspecialty training. Now, the big question in terms of manpower issues and particularly an actual provision of general surgical services is what proportion of those who go on to get subspecialty training continue to practice some form of general surgery. And I expect that varies a lot from region to region and on demand and whether somebody who, say, becomes a colorectal surgeon can sufficiently tailor their 
practice and still have a full operating schedule and clinic schedule by doing only colorectal surgery or if they have to do cholecystectomies and other stuff in order to keep busy. That's going to vary from location to location. You've mentioned some very interesting points. Certainly, many of the general surgeons have tried to carve out a niche, such as doing only breast surgery or doing any hernia surgery. And the joke is, well, it'll get to the point where you'll do only right-sided hernias or only left-sided hernias. It just gets so focused. But then when these physicians who are general surgeons get on staff and they get asked by their hospital to take general surgery call, as you alluded to before, they may say, no, I only do breast surgery, I only do hernia surgery. Do you think this is contributing to the shortage of general surgeons in the emergency room itself? I think it is. Again, you don't see any large papers that can document this, but you see in the publications of the American College of Surgeons and other publications talk of this anecdotes. You certainly hear it from people in the community practicing that hospitals are having increasingly difficult time getting people to cover general surgery, particularly if they have, in some cases, if they've done a subspecialty or if they've carved out a certain niche and they say, I'm no longer going to cover that. Particularly trauma in some smaller communities is a problem. And hospitals are having to remunerate people in order to get them to cover call, which I haven't studied this extensively, but on the face of it, I don't think that's unreasonable. After all, people are providing a service, and hospitals do make money off of surgical services. So it's not unreasonable for surgeons, I think, to expect to be remunerated for taking call, though I know in the eyes of some people, you know, because it wasn't done traditionally, that may seem immoral, but I think it's probably practical and it's certainly the way things are going to be in the future, especially because it appears that there's less and less people willing to take general surgical call. In some communities, both academic and community, this has been addressed by having a sort of surgical hospitalist. In other words, having a surgeon either paid by a group or each of the group taking turns being on call for either a 12- or 24-hour period to cover all surgical emergencies, consults, etc., during this time so that that's covered and then the rest of the group can do their elective cases and clinic without having those disrupted. Now, I remember a number of years ago, as an intern and a resident, we were on call every other night, and our attendings used to say, well, that's too bad that you missed (laughs) half the cases. Um, The question is, now with the 80-hour work week, does that compromise the ability of a resident to really learn the entirety of general surgery? To be honest, I'm not qualified to comment on that, and I don't know if anybody is. I mean, that would be a fit topic for an endless telephone conversation, and certainly to have the thoughts of educators more knowledgeable and senior to me. I do think that it's probably more difficult for residents to get adequate case numbers under this system. Of course, how do you define adequate? That's up to the Board of Surgery. I also think it makes it more difficult to have the kind of continuity of care that you had in the days before the eight-hour work week when people were basically in the hospital all the time. Having said that, it's now the law, and the law is not going to change, and you know we all have to live with it. And so training programs are trying to find ways to 
make sure that residents get adequately trained, whether it's through more didactic education, whether it's working with surgical simulators, whether it's providing online educational material, whether it's making more of an effort to get the junior residents in the OR to open and close. Everybody's scrambling to try and make sure that people are adequately prepared. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Dana Christian Lynch. We have been discussing the evolution of general surgery. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM157. And thank you for listening.